Christian, Travis, you guys both played in rock bands, right? Hell yeah! Heck yeah, man! <laughs> well, today we're talking about a commune that was actually centered around rock and roll. Uh, this group had their <laughs> this group had their own band. Uh, they made a lot of their money selling commune swag on the festival rock circuit, and they even ran their own rock festival for a while. And they're called the Zendik Arts Farm. And at various points, they're based in Southern California, Texas, Florida, North Carolina, and finally West Virginia. Uh, Travis, have you heard of them? I have not, but I haven't heard of a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know you have, Christian. And so you know that they're founded by a guy named Lawrence Wolfing. Uh, he went by the name Wolf, uh, as you probably have to if your name is Wolfing. Um, <laughs> and then his wife, Carol Merson, um, who was his lifelong partner, she went by the name Errol. A-R-O-L. And they were quite a pair. Wolf was 20 years older than Errol and a bohemian countercultural rabble rouser. He liked to describe himself as an undiscovered beat. And he was a poet and a musician. And after he died in 1999, Errol took over leadership of both the commune and of the band. Travis, I sent you a little clip of the, some of their music. This is Wolf's album, not Errol's. Could you play me a little clip? I sure can. Hold on. Let me make sure I have this all set up correctly. And let's try this out. I shall go searching of them never again, never again. I shall go searching of them never, never again. Walking yeah, definitely psychedelic. Sounds like there's a goat as the lead singer. Did you say a goat? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe a bit of a satanic right, edge. Was that the right piece? I mean, would that ever be the right piece? I don't know, but <laughs> that is the piece I sent you. Um, okay, guys, I'm not musical, so I'm going to defer to your judgment on this one. What is that? Travis, please, what what do you think? So uh, my first instinct is some kind of dirgy, slightly uh, um, hallucinogenic-tinged uh, psychedelia. You know, I, I agree. Very definitely psychedelic. Um, it sounds like a goat singing a little bit, which I know the goats figure big into Zendik. Um, <laughs> and it sounds definitely scary, I think, too. Yeah, I, I got kind of a Jefferson Airplane vibe from it, but like maybe if they'd all forgotten how to play their instruments or sing or write songs. <laughs> or if Jefferson Airplane crashed into the side of a mountain with no survivors. But full yeah, of goats. The plane was full of goats. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, after Wolf died, Errol took over the band, and we've got a little clip of her playing too. Um, Travis, can you cue that up? Could be... Do you have a dream like me when you when you dream do you see rivers running clear Okay, so that's Errol, and you get a little taste, I think, of the Zendik Farm ecological focus there. She's, like, crooning about rivers running clear. And as far as I can make out, Christian, I'd love to have you weigh in on this. As far as I can tell, the Zendiks had a kind of a fairly standard countercultural critique of mainstream society. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, I mean, certainly... Uh... They were against consumerism. They were against uh, destruction of the environment. Um, they called the broader culture. They separated themselves from the death culture. Uh, so, yeah, I would say they're they're rebels. Yeah, and from what I can glean, though, it's almost as much about affect and attitude as it is ideas. And I got one more clip queued up for you, Travis. And this is Wolf talking about their philosophy from 1996. You go ahead and play that. You got it. Here we go. What we do here and what we offer here is the only shot on this planet. The only hope. You see? 
But you have to, to understand that you can't have been destroyed so, so radically, conditioned so severely, that you can't understand, mutated so badly intellectually. That doesn't mean you don't have a lot of, a lot of shine and a lot of gloss and you don't know how to do this and you don't know how to do that and you don't know how to uh, pose and act and uh, uh, maybe even make money or get by or work the welfare system or whatever the f you know how to do. You see? None of these have anything to do with intelligence. Intelligence means that you care about life that you care about your future, that you understand that what I'm saying is life or death, that this is war, that humanity has gone totally flat out berserk and has been on this path since before history. I've got an uncle like that. <laughs> <laughs> Christian, uh, what do you make of that? Well, it's uh, the same message you'd hear from any kind of fundamentalist member of any religious sect that they have the only way that, you know, the world is burning around you and we offer you the only path to salvation. But they're not concerned with the afterlife. They're concerned with the material world here and now, uh, ecology. And I think it's a kind of a secular social salvation that they're offering yeah there's a real kind of binary you're with us or against us flair to that and um he wrote a piece one of his most famous writings was called the saviors and the destroyers and that's kind of their vibe as far as i can tell is you're with zendik or you're the enemy and so christian you know zendik was definitely experimental in some ways right it's it's an early organic farm they were innovative when it came to sexuality and, and child rearing practices and something of an arts colony but i guess a question i have is whether that kind of extreme rhetoric we heard from wolf there about full-on revolution against as you mentioned against the death culture I, i'm really curious if they ever really matched that with their way of life or if it was like bluster yeah well, I think it's a very legitimate question, and then uh, I, I hope we'll get some answers to that today from our guests, Jeannie and Verd, who lived at Zendik Farm. Yeah, and next week we'll be talking to Helen Zuman, who also wrote a memoir about her time at Zendik. So I'm really excited to learn more about this this commune. Well, what's really interesting, Dan, too, is that um, you, you said they were innovative in sexual practices, but as you very well know, uh, a lot of what they did has been tried over a couple centuries in America. Their system's not actually very dissimilar from that used by the Oneida community, uh, except there was certainly a more holistically positive attitude towards just sex for the sake of sex, um, and which Oneida had to some degree, but I think Zendik took it into the 60s uh, mentality of that. And plus the men were allowed to finish the, their job. Well, I'm excited to hear all about that, Christian. Um, <laughs> <laughs> This is Communes USA, and I'm Dan Greenstone in Chicago, and that's Christian Goodwillie in New York, and Travis Chandler at the controls. So thank you for, for being with us today, Jeannie and Verd. And uh, since all of us are children of the Chicago suburbs, when I started reading your memoir from the ground up, um, the first thing that jumped out at me was you grew up in the, in the John Hughes era of the 1980s wealthy Chicago suburbs. And then you opened your second chapter with that exact statement that that's, that's the culture you came out of. How did you step out of that culture and become a seeker seeking something like what Zendik could provide you? And, and I ask this because in the mid eighties, I don't feel like there was a type of catastrophic awareness of environmental issues among high school age kids as maybe there are, there is today. Okay, so you're you're asking me how did I become a seeker to the extent that it ended ended me up at Zendik? So that definitely started when I was 10, 11, probably primarily first with an uber positive experience at summer camp. I experienced a great deal of peace and kind of almost ashram-like 
spirituality connection that I really, really loved. That juxtaposition of, of being in a place like the camp I was at that really had a code of how the people on this property interacted with each other of, you know, kindness, respect, caring, and also, you know, every day we sang songs about how beautiful the nature was there and, and our connection to nature. And so, um, you know, I, I've, I've actually been singing this one camp song to myself that is about beauty and repose. And I find myself in my life right now working on finding repose. <laughs> I'm like, wait, this was a camp song I loved when I was 10. Like, so my, my quest and my ending up Zendik, at Zendik for 17 years had a lot to do with my kind of life that I am a seeker. And, um, you know, some of what I have sought in my life, I certainly found at Zendik and then some in a positive way. And Zendik also, you know, fell really short in other ways, but it was a phase of my life. So, you know, love of nature, a fast forward was, I met, you know, my first true love when I was 15 at the end of sophomore year. He's the guy who ended up killing himself. You know, in the, in the trajectory of men I have loved in my life, there is a theme of them being seekers, but to an even more extreme degree than I am, or or more like. Didn't it start with having a great ass? Yeah, I was really attracted to him. Like I'd never been attracted to anyone like this. It was sophomore year badminton class, and I was like, "Whoa, uh-huh. look at that yeah. guy's ass!" Hey, I check out that shuttlecock. He was such a good girl, exactly. And I was just like, this guy just. <laughs> like and he know. had the Jim Morrison and, and oh the weed. And, yeah. yeah, he was, so. you know, bad boy plus. You but Jamie, why, why didn't you call the book from the bottom up then? Exactly. <laughs> I was thinking that might be our second book. <laughs> there were three teachers at Washburn Junior High in Winnetka who were like Ivy League educated hippies. And they at one point had had very long hair. They had the magical mystery faculty band. <laughs> and what's that song? Um, you know, sort of protest songs they would play at our school dances. And to me, these were the sexiest men. I, I mean, I was an eighth grader, but I was like, whoa, Mr. Littell is just. And he. we read a lot of really great books with him. And he really, really influenced me. I was in like a special group of extra creative leader and we did a whole thing about the sixties. Oh my God. It was like a multimedia show that the students put together. Some of the parents got very, very upset and they were students were not allowed to do this again, but we did a deep dive into the sixties. From then on, I was kind of like, didn't anyone mean it in the sixties? Like, you know, Oh, and then at new Trier junior year, I was in like a, high-level humanities English history. Mr. Kern, who went to Grinnell, oh my God, this was a teacher. He taught on nonconformity. And we studied the beat poets, and that really spoke to me. I was a, I was like, okay, I am a nonconformist. That is who I am. And then I loved the beat poets. And that's where I was like, well, what happened to these beat poets? Didn't anyone mean it? So that's why when I met Wolf, I was like, Woo! Hello, be poet. <laughs> you know, so. well, Verd. How about how about you? Uh, is is your story similar? No. <laughs> I mean, in the sense of like you know, ten, ten look, years different. I didn't even make it through high school, so That's there was right. no there were no high school teachers that I can. Um, my 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 high school teachers were really cool, and they were concerned about me, and they were making all kinds of accommodations to keep me in school, but pretty. Pretty early, I had like the um, I had the I had the drift. I was like drifting away from from the school and had some pretty powerful ideas of what I really wanted to do instead. So, um, you know, I started playing around. I think the summer of 
you know, when I was 16. And I think it would be fair to say that, you know, marijuana was very influential for me. It helped me feel like quite good and kind of helped with some, you know, interesting ideation. I really, really liked the music. I was, I was able to continue with my dancing, even though there was no real outlets for a male, if you're a dancer. I think I was already kind of a nonconformist. So like feeling like I had to like fit into a ballet program or into a jazz program and, you know, only dance to, um, you know, soul to soul and back to life. I wanted to like, you know, do the vanilla ice moves. And I also wanted to like, you know, get down with Boogie Down Productions. And then um, I was very attracted to um, African-American culture. And those were mostly who my friends were and rap and hip hop and started experimenting with doing graffiti and, um, you know, really sort of took all that in and um, had a couple girlfriends um, that, yeah. yeah, And, you know, um, you know, my first forays into that, you know, they were, they were great. They were charged, they were exciting, but um, it just didn't work out or whatever. And I I took it kind of hard. I was just, I was just too distracted to focus on school. So so what happened was I started looking at trying to find a real career. I wanted to like have an impact pretty early. I had that in me. Like I want to go to work. And so I'm smoking a little, smoking a little bud and I'm working full time at a, at a dog kennel and um, experimenting, hanging out with different crews of friends. And I happened to be at a party and, um, real magical experience. I don't know how to explain it. You know, these things, like sometimes it just happened. There was this magazine that was sitting on a counter in there and it had an owl on it, black jet black magazine with this owl in the middle said Zendik arts on it. And, um, I would just, it was almost like, you know, I was just like tractor beam right to that magazine, picked it up. And that magazine cracked me up, man. There was like (laughs) all this like hilarious, like articles about how society's messed up and, you know, words like first time I'd ever read the, 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 the idea of a death culture or a suicide, which was the one that I really, it really spoke to me because I felt like the way that the world around me, I was looking for something to plug into that was just saying, this just doesn't feel right. And Zendik, Zendik farm really, really articulated that really well. But then, you know, and then I, I'll admit I was, a, you know, I had a powerful LSD experience and I was walking underneath a viaduct over down there by the high school and me and my friend were walking together and we just screamed out, like, we just, I don't know where this came from. It just came right out of my heart. I was like, I want to live in a no money society where you can be with the friends, with your friends for the rest of your life and, and also experiment and, and do drugs and no one will give you a problem. And like, that was sort of the, um, you got, you, know, you got two out of three. <laughs> yeah. I got two out of, well, yeah. And so that magazine spoke to me. I took it home to my parents and they were I think they were very concerned about me and some of my life choices at the time, understandably. Um, and they really liked the magazine, though, much to their credit. And they called the FBI. That's right. And the FBI said, well, you know, they are a bunch of hippies who really think that they're doing revolutionary work, but they're actually not. They're just a commune. And and then then they called the local police department. And the police department was actually pretty positive about Zendik Farm. They were kind of like, this is Bastrop police and said some good things about the community and their relationships. And they're like, yeah, they're weird, but you know, you don't need to worry about that. So that was it. I hopped on an Amtrak. And then your dad called my mom. Oh, right. So then, (laughs) so there's this whole like, you know, destiny love triangle thing here. So I called the, I called the farm on my original interview and Chen is the one who picked up. Right. That's right. He and I talked and then he was kind of like, this kid's a little soft and handed the phone off to you. Yeah. I remember it being like, I, I got to go or, or you should handle this one, Shay. And well, so. I got on the phone with, with her and started telling her about my girlfriend at the time who was, you know, threatening to commit suicide if I left. And, and she's like, you know what, that sounds really terrible, but I got to go milk some goats and um, you're welcome to come here though. You seem like a great guy. And then, well, I, and and I then basically, relate. yeah, you could relate, could relate, but you were also kind of like, I got to get off the phone and but go to the goats. I remember you telling me about your girlfriend who was talking about committing suicide. Well, my boyfriend had committed suicide. So I was kind of like, I remember something like saying to you, there's only so much you can do. Like, yeah. You have to make a life for yourself, you know, which, which, the, which I heard through, I got to go do goats, meaning that there's something more important, you know, that there's just right. something more interesting than dwelling around in your like right. pain, fear right. and indecision. And I, I heard that. And so I knew I wanted to go and my parents were cool with it. So for, at the time it was a six week apprenticeship on a farm, which by the way, the one thing I left out is that I always wanted to do organic farming badly. We had a backyard garden in my house. 
I took care of the tomatoes, did all that kind of stuff, organic gardening magazine. And for some reason that also felt revolutionary to me was to go grow food. So this, the farm had it all for me, man. It had the arts thing. It had the rebellious stuff. It had the organic growing. It was, I was all in the artwork, the cool, funky looking people. So I got on that train and for 300 bucks, I did my first six week apprenticeship there. Right. And I remember in that call, cause he was only 16. It was kind of like at Zendik, we were like, well, can we take this person? We need to know that their parents are okay with it. And then I had said, well, if your parents want to call my parents, my parents would be willing to talk to them. And Bird's dad did call my mom. And yeah. Talk. <laughs> yeah. So, it, you know, it runs deep. It was um, right away. Right away. It was and I mean, deep. I remember that when you showed up. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. Well, I want to pick up there. You mentioned uh, the term death culture, which is the Zendik term for everyone outside of Zendik. I guess I wonder that that rhetoric feels perfectly designed to kind of strike an adolescent, you know, yeah. and, and I'm wondering if if the farm sort of matched that level of attitude when you were there or was the slogan maybe a little more edgy than the actual place? I mean, I remember pulling up to the farm in California, you know, big sign above the gate, you know, ye who leave here abandon all hope. I mean, just flat out, like you are safe here and you are in danger in a death culture beyond this gate. No, I want to go on record saying that. I and I think you felt this way too. There was a little like death culture was like like I thought I thought that was okay. My my preferred was always suicidey. Right. Like I like that one a lot more. And that really was one, one that really pulled me in. I would say death culture here and there, but even when I would say yes. it out in public and forget, forget trying to get anywhere with people on the street, trying to explain what we're doing with death culture. That was yeah. always just too harsh. Yeah. Suicidy. I felt like had a little more like of a, uh, an agency to it that I like sort of like a collective, like we're all just lost and we're all doing like this self-termination thing. And there was a rift in the community about that. Some oh, people totally. were a little bit more like, no, it's a death culture and it's them. And they're the death culture and we're the, yeah. we're the life culture. And I was seeing it more as like, we as a group are kind of self-terminating and we're kind of unconscious and suicidy always felt a little more sophisticated to me. And I use that quite yeah. a bit. Yeah. Yeah. And I would add to that. We also had these vans that we would go selling in that were like painted with, with these like cartoons that were these kind of death culture oriented statements that, you know, we drive the van into LA and San Diego with this artwork, but it it actually really put me off. Um, I was very put off by the anger in the word death culture and the whole approach that the, the pointing a finger and saying you suck and we're good with anger. I really didn't like, and I remember talking to Chen about it in the kitchen, probably like day two or three. Like, as I'm kind of figuring if I'm, I mean, I loved it immediately. I immediately felt like I had found my place. So then adjusting to the rhetoric, the philosophy, and I remember saying, no, well, why anger? I think I just didn't believe in that as a way to change the world and never, never really did. And I remember Chen saying to me, well, we're pissed. There's stuff going on that is terrible. And, yeah, if you're not angry, you're not paying really, attention. Yeah, you know? and so we're to be, you know, honest, we're angry. Well, so let me ask each of you because you joined Zendik when it had already existed for between 15 and 20 years. Um, you don't think about militant environmentalism and that kind of rhetoric as part of late 60s hippie communes. I, I feel like that develops a little later. What was your sense of Wolf's original purpose in starting Zendik Farm and how had it changed between that point and when you joined it? Well, the vibe I got when I got there was like the original tent. It seemed like from them was it started out kind of as this sort of romantic, we're going to save the world with the art thing. Yeah, like a, a and then musician. Like, and then like sort of the ecology part of it came out of the necessity of like trying to figure out a way to survive and do it on the cheap. Wolf had a messiah complex. I mean, you know, we should be real about that. Um, I have skewed that way myself personally. And, you know, all of us in our lives can become, you know, you know, a little bit of a little grandiose right here and there. And, um, you know, we were all sort of supporting that and he would, he would kind of ebb and flow sometimes into that kind of thing where it's like, you know, we're going to be able to save the whole planet. And, um, (laughs) Even though like nobody speaks anything but English at the farm. Anyway, like how are we gonna convince everybody? Yeah, like no, you know, but 
you know, it'd be like, all right, so, you know, we're going to create this new system of government. And he had a whole, uh, you know, political philosophy. That was something that really attracted me, that there actually was sort of this alternative government proposed, you know, that was more environmental and ecological. Uh, Verd, was he and, still alive when you when you arrived? Did you yeah, meet Wolf? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I met him, and um, you know, I've I've spent some close time with him. Actually. I remember we were having sex at the time. I was having sex with Wolf. So, so apparently, I was having sex with Wolf too. <laughs> I oh, have, I remember. I got into. Really, I didn't really know all that. People were really yeah. upset when I was like, "Verd, this you know, seventeen year old is extremely sensitive. Uh, you know, Wolf's very sensitive, and so is Verd." People were like, "What?" <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. You can't compare them sexually. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Apparently, I had a. Oh God. Yeah, I had some skills in the sack at 16, apparently. Well, you were sensitive. <laughs> yeah, you didn't have skills yet. So it was going on, but I wouldn't say I like there know. was no, I, I there think... was never like guns. Like guns were kind of not a big thing for us. The, the whole idea was that, you know, we were going to try to create this um, beautiful, harmonious, interrelational social thing because the problem with human beings and why we are a society is because we can't communicate with each other and talk about the real priorities. And if we could just... Right. get that part right, then everything else would fall into place. It was like, if we could just get this social thing right and demonstrate that, then things like, you know, like a, like a pile of dominoes where they all just go down, the social stuff, how we do food, how we do all this, because we've got this communication thing worked out. Now we can actually talk about, you know, what's going on and egos wouldn't get in the way and we could solve world hunger. We could solve, you know, uh, poverty. We could solve environmental destruction because finally we can just talk about it and people would somehow be like, Oh, right. You're right. We shouldn't be polluting the air. And, you know, everything's cool now because we can, you know, because we can talk to each other from the heart and, you know, we're interconnected. And all of a sudden I see it because you Zendix have come here and somehow made us see it in a way that we couldn't before through your amazing example of this sustainable society you're doing out in Bastrop, Texas. <laughs> like that was the, I think that was the, that was, yeah, that was the pitch. That you know? was, I mean, back to the beginning of Zendik, I think that Mostly you would see photos of hippie handmade looking instruments, musicians. They were traveling to colleges and doing music performances. That was probably early 70s, 72. I think it was sort of like artists living in Hollywood. Wolf's parents had some land. I know Errol made an organic garden immediately. Yeah. It so, definitely skewed artist type, privileged the creative artist space. Artists. These aren't people who want to go like work jobs in the world and then yeah, come actually, bring the money back to the farm, for example, like some other people organize it, you know? Right. Like this was kind of like, you know, we don't have the patience to fit in with some of this other stuff. You know, we're not going to like go have a job. That was basically like killing yourself. Let's talk about what was life like living on the commune. And I'm curious, like, what were some of the parts you particularly enjoyed in terms of companionship or camaraderie? Was there drudgery? You know, you both stayed for a fair amount of time. I'm assuming there were parts of it that you liked. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I loved the rhythm of life there. There was, you know, something about sharing money. There was a certain amount of stress that was removed, a certain type of stress. Of course, there was another type of stress that was introduced, but the type of stress that was removed allowed me to in, kind of enjoy my moment or live a little more fully. So it, the, what it was was like, you'd wake up, you'd go to a communal eating area, and breakfast was made. And it was, you know, really healthy. And there was like a lot of people sitting around talking about deep stuff or personal stuff, who they had sex with, what happened the night before, like pretty deep, open, for the most part, not always, but pretty good vibes, you know, like, well, like kind of, you know, being with your friends and. And then there was this mission to it. Like, what are we doing today? Maybe you were leaving on a selling trip, you know, to proselytize and make money. Exciting. You know, we're heading out to L.A. or San Francisco or in, in the later years, other places. Or like, 
hey, we're doing a huge planting in the garden today, or we're putting up a barn, or I don't know, it was really fun, very, very exciting that way. And then, you know, you'd have a meeting in the morning, who's doing what, and then, you know, I might go for a run and lift some weights. <laughs> like, you know, I didn't have to necessarily go right to work. And in, as I, I always liked business and kind of an aspect of me was sort of a person who would work at a desk and do things like that too. So really nice mix of like garden for a few hours, um, you know, call some colleges to book, you know, our tour that was going to generate money speaking at colleges. Like I, I liked that flow a lot. I, I love the relationship with food. Um, you know, maybe I helped prepare three meals a week and helped clean three meals a week. And it was, you know, really delicious, healthy food. So you guys have to understand, I went there when I was 16. So like, I did a lot of like maturing. So, you know, I did some growing up there. I, I would just yeah. basically second everything that Jean just said, but I'd say I liked the isolation, but yet there's 70 people there. So, um, and then not having money exchange between people. Oh, what a, what a, what a great thing, yeah. man. And then I love to work and I, you know, we put in these long, long hours, but it just didn't really feel like you were working, you know? And then there was this other thing. The daughter of the founders was into dance and wherever we went, we would create a dance studio. Right. And, you know, she wasn't in there all day and I was allowed to go in there. And at times I would, I'd spend two to three, four hours of studio time just myself. And I did, I look back on it now and it was a lot of like just processing. It was like my sort of way of doing meditation. And I was able to like spend hours in there just working out, you know, my body and what's going on emotionally in me to like songs. And I've danced from everything from like Nine Inch Nails to classical pieces by, you know, Dvorak to whatever. And it was just in there all the time doing that. And that I really, really miss. You, you both mentioned the sort of joy of living in a place that didn't use money. Uh, could, could you un unpack that for me? What's so great yeah. about that? I just want to go on record saying if we didn't have money, I think the world would be pretty chaotic. Right, right exactly. So like, I'm not against money. I think it's probably one of the most successful ideas that's ever come about to get human beings to fucking behave. Right. Okay. Right. But if you can go to a place where everybody consensually says, I don't want that as part of it anymore. What you've removed is you've removed this barrier. Yeah. So it was really great to go to a place where that wasn't even like a thing. Like, I mean, to have your meals made for you every day. Right. You know, I mean, yeah. I mean, I might as well have been in some sort of womb, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Like, seriously. It's like, I don't have to do shit. Like, except for the, <laughs> except for the thing that I want to do all day. And right. like, that was kind of, that was kind of blissful. I'm not going to lie, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And we've, we've heard a lot of the positive aspects of it. Um, this series that uh, Dan and I are doing covers the history of communal groups in America for 300 plus years. Wow. And Don't forget uh, Travis. And, tra and our, and our dear friend and producer, Travis. Yes. Um, and, and what's so amazing is that the, the sexual system that was established at Zendik as the saying goes, there's nothing new under the sun. And uh, as you know, from listening to Dan's podcast on the Oneida community, there are many, many parallels there. And um, Verd, you mentioned kind of being a kid in a candy store as a, a late teenager who's put oh, into yeah. this kind of system. Now, but then there's the, the negative side of it too, the psychological control aspect. And I know that affected both of you very directly and personally. Could you talk about that a little bit? So Zendik has had multiple, like, multiple experiments of the sexual system along the way. That's I mean, right. when I left, motherfuckers yeah. were getting married, okay? Like, Gene yeah. and I would have gotten married probably at the farm <laughs> if that was, like, some sort of, like, if that was available at the time in the culture, right? So I could speak to, like, 96 to 2004, okay? Right. And I would say that, you know, during that time, it stayed pretty consistent. You know, community is... is your own personal sexual exploration for yourself comes first and um and and being part of the community is also right there up at first so so that, those are the kind of two things couples themselves were seen as a little bit of you know they get too insular and somehow that was like a breaking off thing almost like having your own personal bank account you know yes. it had that same because it was yes. creating a division at the time right. it was threatening to the community to like see two people holding hands all the time maybe spending a lot of time talking to each other um, off, off on the side. So 
there was an element of, you know, people can't splinter off or clique out. And it would, by the way, this wasn't just sex. This would also be like sort of friendships too. And well, can I, I have a follow up on that, Verd. Um, It's so interesting because, you know, as we've talked about, many communes have tried some system like this. Oneida did, um, Carista did. And there always seems to be a tension between the kind of human propensity to have favorites and, and, you know, kind of bond in a pair or uh, maybe more than a pair, but it's certainly in a small group versus the sort of imperative of the group to have loyalty to the group. And one of the things that fascinates me most is here you guys are who obviously have this incredible bond. Um, how do you, how did you process that tension at the time? How did it feel to be like in love, but being told that it was wrong? Well, it depends. It depends on the time. So, you know, when in my younger years, right, as I'm, as I'm sort of developing from, you know, uh, being a teenager into my twenties, right. Um, I, I'm, I was kind of more of a polygamous kind of nature. Like it did not bother me that Gene had relationships with other men in the sack, as long as I kind of knew I was number one, you know, emotionally, mm-hmm. because I didn't, I really, really do respect everybody's right to their own body and they can do things. And that's actually not a threat to our personal relationship. But if I did feel it going emotionally, the other direction or feeling like I wasn't allowed to be with her, which at times the community would freak out and sort of put put the brakes on our relationship and tell us to take, take, they would suggest that we take a break from each other or, you know, whatever. And at the first time it happened, suggest is a nice word. or tell us, you know, <laughs> yeah, they, yeah. Would, they, they would, you know, they would tell us or be, yeah, I guess well, it was basically, it was, I mean, multiple times it was either like, you guys need to break off your relationship or go get an apartment together. That was always what couples were told. Well, you can go get an apartment if that's what you want to do. But it was kind of this generalized system that was basically like, okay, so if you wanted to have a date with somebody, um, the idea was that like nobody's really necessarily exclusive, but certainly, of course, you have your preferences. This was, I want to be really clear. Sometimes, you know, the most common thing I'd run into on the street is like, oh, it's a sex commune, everybody's screwing each other. That actually, you know, nobody was like forced to have sex necessarily with anybody else. Um, that is a debatable thing. And I know that some, some bad shit has happened. So, yeah. and I want to honor that, but I'm saying like, I personally never um, experienced it. Right, the I don't, I don't think you really necessarily experienced like forcing you to have sex with somebody. Right. Like for me, it was always consensual and it was done in this thing where you have a third party, you ask somebody, like I would say, Hey, Jean, I'd like to have a date with Helen tonight. And we'd have a date, you know what I mean? And then it would be kind of like, I would we'd, go, we'd have an intimate experience who, and there was, arranged it. and there was, there was separate quarters to have sex. If you didn't want to be a beast and do it outside. Yeah. So that was, so that was the system. So, okay. So I hope that locates this time period. You know what I mean? That was just basically how it went down. You and know a lot I mean? of times with us, I recall that it was like, you know, it was going to go all the way to the top and would they, would they give us permission or not? Some of the people at the farm were looking out for me. I mean, Gene's got 10 years on me. So there was sort of a narrative that, you know, I would be impressionable and to, you know what I mean? Like reverse me too kind of a thing, you know? Um, And that's how it was approached to me a lot of times. Like sometimes people that I really trusted and they would come to me and they'd say, Bird, you're just, you can't see it. You're, you know, you're, you're, you're under this influence and, you know, you should take a break and, you know, and that's what it is. No. Gene, how did you feel about it um, from your perspective? Uh, how did you feel about the kind of the structures and the interventions and the, the rules? Okay. It's a little confusing to talk about for me because I would say the, the deepest statement that I could make about my time at Zendik in regards to my sexuality was overall a phenomenally liberating experience that I am so grateful for. Like, yeah, me too. Sex is a big part of Verds in my relationship. Our happiness involves that we're both evolving, growing people who are exploring ourselves. And, you know, I mean, I, I've never said this to anyone, but like, we're, we, we have better sex now than we ever have. And I'm like 52 and have been going through difficulties of, you know, aging. And, but like, we're figuring it out and I know we'll continue to. And, 
that to me is like, I don't meet many women in their marriages who, I mean, mostly I, I hear these like terrible stories and I, I feel very sad for a lot of people. Like I, I sought a place where I could get to know who I, who I am sexually. And I, I found it. So that I'm super grateful for. They're like, I mean, everybody is being manipulated on sex constantly in this culture, but is totally like blind to it. Right. I mean, through, through all the ads, through the sales, through right. porn. And I mean, now, through, I mean, what guy is not, what guy is not ruled by porn right now? You know what I mean? <laughs> on some level, like, like some sort of beacon that they can't, this, this like, you know, bizarre, bizarre relationship they have with it. Right. You know, as if we're like a problem because we had some dates and we talked about it openly, like, you know, like, it's, oh, like, I mean, know. and and the truth is that there was a lot of stuff in the sexual practices there that were wonderful and would be, you know, society would be such a healthier place. But I mean, the being cut off, that was the term, was very, very difficult and painful. I still get a cringe on the back of my neck around this stuff with like, what? I was in love with birdies, the true love of my life. Directions were forced upon us, you know what I mean? And I think as like, you know, they gave us a choice, right? It's like, no, if you guys want to be together, you have to leave. And and in that moment, you know, we never really looked at each other and we're like, well, let's leave together. And there have been couples that have left together. Yeah. So like we we still had things to work out with the community. And and at the time you were wanting to have a kid. I wanted to have a kid with you, but I also was still pretty young at the time and didn't understand. Right. Like I, I wasn't was quite ready. Right. And I honestly, I think it wasn't the right time. Yeah. And I was like, my clock is ticking. <clears throat> but the clock was ticking. I'm like, shit, I'm 30. I'm 31. I haven't had a kid yet. You know, and I can biologically feel that, smell that. So when they got in the way. I fought as hard as I could. I remember I, I, I did the only thing, the, the biggest power move I had at the time was I, I threatened to not go out and raise money for the, for the group. They're like, you know, we're not going to deny that you guys want to be together, but if you want to be together, you're going to have to do this somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And, and I looked at Gene. I was probably 30. You were were like, yeah, I was like 20. And, you know, I mean, you should have seen my hair then. Um, (laughs) You know, I think she's looking at me going like, we're going to go out and Gene's a very practical woman. So like the idea of us going out and starting a career or doing, you know, it just wasn't in the cards. And I could see that in the eye contact that there was not like, we're going to go off and do something together away. So I sort of, I, I backed down and that really hurt. I remember you want to talk about the pain. I would see her from far away and I'd be like, you know, almost like trying to look at glimpses through the window to get her attention. And then all of a sudden now she's serious with Brian. And then within, I think two months there was pregnancy and, and then everybody knew that I was angry about this and I was angry about this. And I, at that point, decided that I needed to go. It was, it was, it was like, you know, it's, it was like having such a strong desire and it being held back from you, you know, and waking up in the middle of the night, stress, anxiety about it. And then, so I left for the first time and that was the first time that I had, that I had left. And I called my parents and they took me in and I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. Like sort of like my whole like ethos of the Zendik revolutionary and sort of the, you know, my paradigm was crashing right in front of me, you know? And, you know, I felt like I was in like a weird dream. And I remember I'd go lock myself in the room and just have these sort of jerks of my body and I would be shaking. And then I'd come out of the room and I'd talk to my parents for a minute. And then Finally, I came to peace with it and I came up with a solution, a new identity, which was not that original, but I'll go represent Zendik in Europe. So I decided to go do what I was so good at, which was sell the magazines. And they, to their credit, they let me sell the magazines and all that. And I made a bunch of money and financed my trip through Europe while she was pregnant. Oh, wow. um, And so I would, you know, I went to Denmark, Africa, you know, South Africa, Cape Town. I went to all these different places representing and People would be like, Zendik, what? And that was when I really started to like really understand how grandiose our ideas were. <laughs> Cause I'd, <laughs> I mean, and I just walked into this new country and I sold all that gear and I made a few thousand bucks. And that's, that's how I did it over there. And then when she had the baby and 9 11 happened. Right. And um, 
I remember just, I asked to come back. And so I came back and then I just I picked up the relationship the right up. And Chen, at that point, they had already been separated. So, you know, this is like my normal thing of looking at the clock. <laughs> and, you know, I didn't get over Gene and I never got over Gene. So I just had to get over this, like, I had to get over this, what I considered at the time, a, um, a setback, a little bit of a setback. I just didn't, you know, the, the pregnancy was a little bit of a setback. Verse yeah. personality is yeah. like always positive. I'm so glad you just saw it as a setback. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and Thea was so beautiful when I got back and, you know, I was holding her and the carrying around in the backpack. And, you know, I remember I, I tried to do, I knew I had to like fake the community out. So like, I had to be like, I'm back for Zendik, not for Gene. Yeah. See, you can't stop true love anyway, is my thing. Yeah, so Gene, um, Let's track back a bit to your experience. Um, you know, what was that experience like for you giving birth in the commune and, and raising your daughter in the commune? Hmm. Well, what just popped into my head was, for the most part, painful. Many of us ha have thought that because Errol went through a terrible parenting trauma when she was young, she had a son who... Um, she asked, she was a single mom and she went to her family and said, if, uh, if my extended family could give me, you know, if each of you could give me a hundred bucks a month, I can make a life work with my son and her family, instead of giving her money, instead of helping support Errol, her family said, we want you to go see Yeti. And Yeti was a woman in the Jewish Brooklyn community that worked for Jewish family services and convinced Errol to give her son up for adoption. So I think Errol was 19 or 20, and her son was two. Her son was not like a newborn, two or three. Wow. And she was told he's going to go to a nice Jewish family, and, you know, the dad's a doctor, and they have a beautiful house in a suburb. But that trauma that er Errol then kind of went crazy, and... Friends of hers like got her drunk and put her on an airplane and brought her to San Francisco. And this was probably 1965. So that trauma in Errol, I don't know if this is a pattern of people who are traumatized, then you know, need to see that repeated for other people. Probably they abuse children who that that's the working theory. So typically when a woman was pregnant, this happened with me and other women I've talked to. There was a very loving phase between Errol and the pregnant woman. And, and Errol sort of began to craft ideas that this mother was going to be a wonderful mother. And, and then always during the birth, actually during the birth itself, Errol would kind of turn on the mother and start to change the narrative that this mother's way of birthing is fucked up. Oh my God. While the woman was in labor. Yes. Yes. So we went to the hospital when I went in labor because the midwife had said, um, you know, if, if the baby's one more day late, we have to go to the hospital. So I took castor oil and tried to get the baby to come anyways, went, thank God, went to the hospital. And during the birth, Oh, Lore was a Lamaze breathing instructor and was kind of like my birth coach and had taught me the special breathing for childbirth. Well, I ran into tough transition in childbirth and the breathing was out the fucking window. I just couldn't, I mean, I, I didn't even know how I was getting through the next contraction. I couldn't breathe anymore. And that's when Errol was like, she's doing this her way, her daddy's way. And, you know, just very rejecting of me during the birth. I ended up getting an epidural and, um, you know, I mean, Thea was born, Thea was fine, but getting an epidural was not natural, you know, big, big, bad sin, uh, failure, you know, uh, for, I could feel it. Um, whereas initially I was practically convinced by Errol to have a baby with Chen. And I remember saying like, I can't have a baby. I, I'm ultimately going to need to leave here because I can't have a baby here because I can't stand how mothers and children are separated. Mm. That I, I might have been on mushrooms or something. I can't <laughs> Something got me to where I was willing to march into Errol and Wolf and say, guys, I can't hang with you because of how you were, are with children. I know I'm jumping around because I'm no. kind of emotional about this stuff. I mean, I was... I started to cry when you were talking to Vert about when we were cut off. And, um, and ultimately, you're, it sounds like the 
thing you warned them about at the beginning came true, right? which is it's going to be impossible to really parent the way you wanted to parent at the farm. Is that right? Absolutely. I was kind of like, well, I will not be able to be separated from my child. And Errol said, it's not going to happen. We're not going to do that anymore. It's, it's not going to happen. We're not going to separate you from your baby. Don't worry about that. So I went for it. The day that I was separated from Thea, which was, I mean, these two days, the day when I was separated from Bird, I remember going to bed and thinking, I might actually die in my sleep. I do not know how I'm going to wake up and have to start a life without Verdi as my intimate partner. I'm, I'm, I literally, I'm, my body might just die. It was uh-huh. so painful. It was, and then that, you know, then the day that Errol separated me from Thea, it was in Errol's kitchen and I started screaming and pulling my hair, just, just more painful and ugly than you can ever imagine life was ever supposed to be. It was those kind of moments. So that happened. And then towards the end of being separated where Thea was living with her dad primarily. With, Wolf was dead that night. Yeah, yes, Wolf was definitely dead. Yeah. And, you know, you guys know that after Wolf died, Errol really, like, set about destroying the place, really. I mean, it was fucked up. Well, but she didn't have her partner anymore. Matt. And Wolf was a balance. Yeah. So there's a whole thing there. And then poor Fawn is a whole nother's their dog. But anyways, so so this flip-flop thing. So then I'm in New York City selling the magazine, separated from my kid. Oh, God, so painful. And people were being mean to me. Like, decent people were saying, Zendix were saying terrible stuff to me in regards to me and Thea. But I'm in New York City on the phone with Errol. And Errol says to me, you know what? We figured it out. This whole time, you've actually been wonderful. We don't know why you separated you from Thea. It's Brian who's the devil. Then I moved into Errol's house again, and then Brian's in the shitter. So there's a meeting in the kitchen. And when you're at Zendik a long time, at that point, I've been there 16 years, you start to see the patterns. Well, I see this one coming and all these people are trying to convince Brian to leave and they're wearing him down and they're wearing him down and they're making him feel like shit about himself. And they're practically cutting his balls off. I mean, just telling him he is the biggest piece of shit that ever walked till he finally says, you're right. I should take an out. And I'm sitting there like, don't say it, man. Don't go. They won't let him. It's my kid. I'm like, now they're pushing out the father of Mike. It was unreal. And there was nothing I could say. One of us had to be shit in that moment. Mm. It was clear. If I were to say Brian's great, I could be separated from Thea again. Ugh, it was terrible. By the way, I hate to admit it while this is going on. I'm getting a little excited. I'm, fe- I'm, feeling, I'm feeling the chance. Oh, back in there. You know what I mean? And I'm like, I'm like, oh. Finally, this is this is this is coming to a close. Oh. <laughs> I, I only... <laughs> and so it was it was presented oh to the rest God. of us as Chen's gone off the deep end with the philosophy and he needs to go. Oh, no so I just way. just so you guys know, there's you know there's there's layers of gradation and, and ul- information. And ultimately, yeah. Chen became dangerous to Errol and wrote a letter and said, "I have a lawyer, and we will be exposing everything to the world that you have done, separating from parents and children." He listed it all because he'd been there forever. And oh yeah, he got Ar- that attention. Errol said, read yeah. that letter, came up to me and said, Time for you to go. You need to go to your parents' house now. You need to get help to fight Brian on your own. You need your dad right now. You need to leave. And that was all because, you know, Brian scared the shit out of her. So she had to then ultimately kick me out. Well, you know, one uh, thing that I will say about both sets of our parents is that they were extremely supportive of us, even though they were extremely uncomfortable with a lot of things. So, you know, for example, my dad would show up and he would walk the farm and he would talk with people and he loved everybody and he loved, uh, he, he kind of had a crush on Errol too. And, yeah, my dad you know, did too. And my mom, my mom was highly uncomfortable with some of the antics of the farm, but at the same time really was pleased with the effect on me, you know, ultimately. Right. 
And um, on selling trips, we'd stay at his parents' house a lot in Oak Park. And I never got the like, hey, what are you doing there? You're this is terrible. You're violating this, that, you know, I'd I'd be pretty grandiose talking to them about like, you know, creating a brand new political system to take over the planet and, you know, whatever. And they'd be like, okay, honey, you know, that sounds great. You know, um, can we talk next month? You know, and it's like, it was never ever like, you know, we need to crash down on this and I'm really worried, you know, none of that shit at all. And they were just supportive and loving and, you know, and Jean's parents were very much the same. They, they, I'm sure they were, you know, and we've talked to them, they cringed cringed multiple times, but they held it in. And I think they did one of the most important things you can do for somebody when they're in a community and you want to still maintain a relationship with them. If that community is blocking everybody out, which is listen and just stay and be there for them. That is probably, and I've heard this to be consistent across all communities, depending upon, you know, on your cult scale of being like Jim Jones to, you know, somewhere back here where it's just, you know, I don't know, with lightweight, cult light, Michelob light, cult. If there's anybody watching this from the other side of this and they want to know kind of like what's going through the mind of the person who's living in one of these communities and you're still trying to maintain a relationship with them. Or even get them out. You want to get them out. Or if you want to get them out or whatever, but getting trying to get somebody out or even intimating that that's what you want to do is is really, most cases, in my opinion, going to run somebody the other direction. I'm sure there's exceptions to that rule. I think the best advice I could say is try to understand them, let them speak. I think there's something universal about this. And I see people in the workplace go through a version of what I was going through there. And when somebody's in that zone, the best thing you can do yeah. is just hear them out. And then I think that this, this, whatever this sort of mind virus is, it'll work its way through. And I just want to say that for any parent, any friend, any ex-lover, any, anybody out there who's worried about somebody who's on one of these communities or, or hell, in a bad relationship with a boyfriend even, whatever it might be, just try to hold space and listen. I've only got a couple more questions on my list. I don't know, uh, Christian and Travis may have some more, but one of the things I, I just thought was really interesting, I don't know if you guys saw the identically same ad that attracted you to Zendik. I know, Gene, you said your mom showed it to you and Verd, you saw it at a, was it at a party? Um, mine, was in a, mine was in a straight up magazine from Zendik. A magazine. Yeah, like it was a magazine, but there was a pitch that was like basically boiled down to it. So like all life on earth is dying and what can you do? Number huh. one, I have a career by a lawnmower and have 2.5 children. So I thought the 2.5 children was hilarious. And then the mm-hmm. second one was, um, you know, get fat and do drugs. <laughs> <laughs> and then the third option was move to Zendik Farm and live to your highest ideals. And I don't know, I, something about that, man, that just really tickled me. And I liked it and I liked the idea. And I was like, well, I like option three. Huh. Right. Well, Gene, in your book, you you quote it, and if it's okay, right. I'm going to read it to you and yeah. have a, a follow up question. Yeah. So that this is the ad as you quoted in your book: Apprentice on Farm Arts Cooperative outside of San Diego, learn organic farming, animal husbandry, carpentry, dance, must be hardworking. And and I guess what I'm wondering is, all these years later, when you hear that ad, does it sound accurate? Well, it sounds it's embedded in my mind as the thing that attracted me. And I, and I know what in those words attracted me. Like I knew that meant commune. I knew that meant sixties. I knew that meant, you know, sexually something different and open, like somehow that ad buzzworded me enough, but no, I mean, there's a hell of a lot that's left out from that ad. You know, I mean, there's there's a lot of the story that wasn't said there. I would say, though, if you had a magazine, it was very accurate because there, there was stuff in there about like, yes, there was stuff in there about like living therapy, like the, the style of basically like unlicensed roundtable psychological slam fests, you know, basically, <laughs> which which went down there. But, it, you know, when you, they did a good job of describing what it was. And if you had read it, you were, you were informed. I mean, you don't know anything until you actually do it. So, yeah. You know. In fact, a lot of times when I would, when I would try to, like, uh, recruit people and I would talk to them, though, a lot of it was almost trying to talk them out of it sometimes, you know, because I felt, like, morally on the line. I, you know, I'm representing this place, but I'm also getting people to come. I th- you know, I think I had, you know, we, in my time doing road trips, we would have people just join us right off the street. Yeah. We had like 
seven or eight people we brought back would just leave their houses. I remember one young girl, we went to her apartment. I mean, we went to her host house and picked her up from her parents. And this all happened from going from a concert to that house. And it all happened very quickly. And the parents were like, what the hell? And, you know, it's like, you know, I'm sitting there going, yeah, uh, you know. Wow. That's really powerful. Um, Would, you know, to that end, like, I think, uh, you know, as we wrap up, you guys were out of Zendik when it closed. And I'm curious how you reacted when you heard that it had shut down. Ding dong, the wicked witch is dead. <laughs> about Errol. I mean, and I still have such mixed feelings about Errol. I mean, in some ways, who I am as a woman has been and a parent and a wife and a person who lives on the planet. Who I am was very, very um, influenced in a lot of really positive ways by Errol. Uh, I have been left with a feeling that even after writing from the ground up where I told some of the story, I've been left with a feeling that there are some pearls, you know, gems of almost like maybe this is still grandiosity. I don't know of like, wisdom or lessons learned by a group of people who launched into an experiment together, I'm left with a feeling that I still want to share some of the really good stuff. It, it's like, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Like, I'm glad it's done so no one else can get hurt. No other moms and kids can be fucked with. Like, mm. let that end. That has to end. But at the same time, 40 plus years, some of the coolest people I have ever met. Funny, sharp, smart, stellar, incredible human beings who we're still close to, who, who were there. Like, I don't know. It, it was so great what happened there in so many ways. And I don't know that the world has gotten to hear that. Other people had some really dark shit, and that was what actually dominated their experiences there it puts you in a strange position to get out online and start doing stuff because you will get shouted down pretty quickly by, by folks who really want you to be aware that the harm can, can happen to you. Now, since it's over, I feel a little bit more um, at peace with just sort of admitting the reality is I got to give credit where credit is due. Errol and Wolf are why we were there. Wolf wrote uh, a philosophy and gave us something to organize ourselves around. And Errol was sort of the social magnet Incredible. And they were who I wanted to be, who I didn't know. And I have to admit that. Um, that's why on some level I let some of the shit go down around me that I thought was wrong, but had reasons why I thought it was right. And I let them be the ones who are the ones who did it for me. So right. I have a darkness in me that I explored at Zendik Farm. And it's embarrassing and it hurts, but it was consensual and I was into it. Um, and there was a lot of also good shit that went down. And I think it would be hypocritical of me or anybody else who has some sort of self-reflection practice on it to not admit that inside of themselves, some of the shit they let go down is because on some level, they're that kind of person themselves too. And so when I heard that it was over, I was extremely disappointed. A lot of these movements start out with really great energy and people are like connecting and maybe it's not so hierarchical. Um, but the reality is human beings, we look to leaders, we look to people to be the center point at which we channel through. And then we follow what they say. And unfortunately there's a terrible track record of when people get flooded with power, this dark shit comes out. But to answer your question, when I heard that it was over, it was like, fuck, like here was this thing where we had this opportunity. We had 70 really highly motivated people willing to like throw down and not screw around, like actually create buildings and do eco structures and do this stuff. It's so hard. I run a company right now. It is so hard to keep people on the same page and like get something ideal because it's like, well, no, I'm here for the paycheck. You know what I mean? And I was disappointed that an opportunity had been missed um, to, you know, have this place where young people can work together and older people can work together and create something that is to your higher ideals. And that was, that's a lot of deep sadness in me. And I don't think it can ever be reinvented. And the philosophy is still there. It's on a paper. Somebody could grab it and and run with it. 
And the reason that it doesn't happen is because nobody's got what those two had, Marilyn Wolf. And, you know, I don't know what it is, but um, it's sad. We galvanized, we rallied to their call and something beautiful was created. And there was a lot of harm as well that was done in it. Um, I'd say probably about six out of it, it really worked for me. The problem was when, when I actually did become my own person a little bit more and had some ideas and I was not going to just go along with anything, this is where the farm did break down. Um, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. You guys yeah. are great. You're all three very good at, for what? I mean, make us feel safe. I don't even Dan, um, should we bring their parents on now from the waiting yeah. room? They've been yeah. listening the whole, no, I'm kidding. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, they probably no. would. Ha, ha, ha.